Welcome to the latest episode of High Stakes. I'm Paige Soya. I'm the Managing Director of K Street Capital. And this episode is going to be about the rise of climate fintech, what it is, why this is happening right now, what's driving it, and a little bit more information about some of the companies we've seen in the space. And we have two people on the podcast who I think are incredible to have this discussion with. One is one of our portfolio company founders. Actually, both are technically founders or co-founders of portfolio companies. Um, but Ravi Mickelson of Atmos, the CEO founder of Atmos. And we have Zach Axelrod, who's one of our investors, but who also was one of the founding members of Arcadia, one of our unicorns, and then of uh, SmartAC.com. SmartAC, yes. And and now Red Bull, which is a completely different way, of, but all, all three being in the climate space. And so I think that's why this is an interesting episode to tie all this together. But I'll stop there and maybe have each of you introduce yourselves and then we'll kick it off. So, Zach, let's start with you. Thank you. So, I'm Zach Axrod. I'm the CEO and one of the principals of Red Ball Energy. We are a effectively multifamily office for investing in distributed energy assets, primarily solar. Ms. Page mentioned, actually, I was really early at both Arcadia and SmartAC.com, not, not a founder, but I love being at the kind of very, either founding companies or, or being kind of in the first 10. Founding team. Founding team. Um, and my whole career has been at the really the intersection for the last 16 years of distributed energy and finance. So things going in or around homes and small businesses, um, it's hard. And I'm excited to talk about kind of the, what's changed over the last several years in terms of finance of those kind of edge of grid things. Obviously, one of the things I'm excited about is what Robbie's doing in helping democratize edge of grid. So anyway, that's, that's what I've been up to. Thanks for having me, Paige. Thanks, Zach. Um, Ravi. Yeah, thanks, Paige. So Ravi Mickelson, co-founder, CEO of Atmos. I've got just over two decades in the climate and clean energy space. Started as an engineer in the, the physical space of actually trying to deploy, create and deploy clean energy technologies. And you know, my mission in life is to move the world off of fossil fuels. So have been what I call searching for my Archimedes lever. Uh, in 2015, I switched over to finance in order to do so. As we say, money makes the world go round. And in 2019, I met my co-founder, who is a banker, and we struck off on this idea to leverage bank deposits from the 60,000 banks and credit unions globally to move this transition faster. Awesome. Thank you both for for being here. And obviously, this is a topic I'm also passionate about. And most of our listeners know husbands in the climate tech space. We, I've invested in at least 10 climate tech companies and many recent companies we're seeing in the climate fintech space, which is sort of like a new word um, that I think is finally starting to be used. But uh, maybe we start there and just talk about what that even means, climate fintech. Um, I mean, if you look it up online, it's digital financial technology that catalyzes decarbonization. But I think of it as just being a medium, anything that facilitates or is a medium for financing to reach climate tech and ultimately decarbonize. But you guys feel free to add your spin on it. Yeah, I think you take two very broad things. Yeah. Climate encompasses everything. Fintech encompasses just about everything as well. And so you have insurance, you have accounting, you have payments. Uh, so there's there's a myriad of companies that are being created and will come out of or uh, pivoted from conventional fintech becoming climate fintech. They 
or going after a more broad or general set of customers. And they're saying, oh, actually, the climate tech startups are better customer base or they need this more. And so they've pivoted out of trying to solve this for everyone and now are solving this for a smaller subset and and winning. I'll start by saying this, the, the kind of clean energy OG cynic in me says we've, we've had a couple of different definitions of what this all is. And it was, there was smart grid and then there was clean tech and we keep kind of rebranding as an industry. And I think in the last few years, FinTech, as Robbie said, like finance has come in. Um, and I think there's been so much interest in large part because the early years of this industry, it was so asset heavy and a lot of people lost money. We were early and it was hard. And I think there's a hope and belief that digital solutions, and this is what I was a part of at, at Arcadia and obviously what Robbie's doing, an asset light version of these companies is interesting. Um, and, and maybe the next wave of companies that can actually be profitable. And I, I'll openly say I'm not an investor in Robbie's company. I wish I was, but I want to play up what he's doing and, and tie it to to where I see this going and, and the democratization because um, my parents are a, a union lawyer and a, and a teacher and spent their life focused on things that they believed in and then just had their money in a normal retirement account. And I think that's what most people historically in the U.S., even people of, of middle class or upper middle class or even wealth, your time was the vehicle through which you could impact change. I think that's changed a lot or is changing. And we're, we're at the kind of beginning of that. Um, I'll say for myself, I, I own parts of lots of little companies, but what Robbie is doing by trying to democratize it to millions of people or what we're doing at Red Bull, which is taking clean energy finance from, you know, 20 IPPs 20 years ago to now something where a bunch of high net worth people, you know, thousands of people can now participate. We're doing the kind of very incremental democratization and Ravi's doing the real democratization. But I think that this really is growing in large part because you can get more people involved and because there's a, I believe, a trend towards people realizing really in the last 10 years that you could put your money behind things you cared about and have an impact with it beyond just your time. There wasn't really a way to easily do that before. And that's what I find so exciting about what we're both doing in different ways. But in all of this, it's more inclusive in a sense but it lets people have a bigger impact. Yeah. So I think yeah. to summarize is basically, you know, Zach and I started at the top of the funnel where it's broad and covers everyone and he's sort of teeing it up and it's like, let's focus on, on the deployment of capital specifically. So we're not, you know, not talking about payments or account or anything. It's like, how do we move more money? into the solutions that are going to get us off of fossil fuels and ultimately stop climate change. So I think that is what Atmos does and that's somewhat of what uh, Red Ball Energy does um, and some of these other solutions as well. We can talk about where people can put their money in and have an individual impact uh, on climate change. Yeah. I also think, I mean, it took like two decades, but it finally seems like the people are realizing that climate risk is financial risk and banks and other portfolio managers, investment managers are realizing that and trying to find ways to offset it within their portfolios. So this is becoming finally more and more important from a finance perspective. It's just a very logical economic connection now 
even though it may, it may have been logical before to some people, but not to everyone. But also, the, but also the, the math is starting to work. And that, yep. you know, it's, I, I believe that most, that a lot of finance people really care about this passionately, but the number of people who've transitioned their careers into clean energy or, yeah. or, you know, I live in Houston now, the number of every oil and gas fund down here now has a energy transition fund. Um, that's the word in Texas for clean energy. They didn't used to. Now that the math is working, even folks not from clean energy are jumping in. And that's a great thing. That's what we want. Yeah. When you say the math is working, you just mean the cost of adopting some of these technologies has gone down. Yeah. And then not just, not just solar. I mean, there's clean energy related projects, whether it's demand response related projects, storage, things related to EV. Um, there, there, there are solutions with unit economics that work. And that inspires people in finance to, to pursue it. Whereas they might've said, Hey, I believe in this, but I'm not doing anything about it. If you just look at the sheer number of finance professionals in clean energy now and the dollars behind them, that's not all because they believed that, that climate risk is existential. They may or may not have believed that before. They believed that now they can make money doing it. And that's good. That's good for all of us. If you look at the cost declines over the last several decades, like on solar, for instance, with process improvements, even though the cost of polysilicon has increased somewhat in the last couple of years, for a modern 400 watt solar panel, there's only $6.78 worth of silicon in there. And so it's just like, okay, that is incredibly cheap. And so now what we're working on, on the, the soft costs, on the, the financing costs, our model reduces the overall cost of installation for most homeowners versus the incumbents by roughly 30%, which is a huge drop. And so all of these different cost declines, where it's on the financing or the customer acquisition, every 36% decrease in costs of installation leads to a doubling of installation volume. So when our model goes national, we should cause a nearly doubling of installation volume. Like this is how we accelerate this transition. It's like finding- Do you have a graph for that? I feel like that would be a super interesting thing. Uh, there, yeah, there are a lot of uh, these graphs. I think that's a really, really interesting thing to point out. But let's also talk about the the challenges that are facing consumers and small businesses to adopting these technologies. Because I think nonetheless, this all being true, it's still, we needed to be mass adopted like very quickly in order to get to where we want to as, as a planet from a decarbonization perspective but it's not happening that quickly. It's happening more quickly, but maybe not as quickly as it should. So yeah, yeah I mean, share your thoughts on that. All right, so I've spent my entire professional career on that one issue, which, because again, it's been all kind of edge of grid distributed assets. I can't remember who told me this a long time ago that said most people have time in their, or, or space in their brain to think about their family, their job, maybe one other thing. And I think the, the biggest problem that, clean energy has had from a deployment standpoint is if you ask people, would you prefer clean energy or not? Of course, everybody says yes, right? And there was, I forget the study 10 years ago, it was like 92%. And then you look at what percentage of people have deployed literally a single thing in their home, right? And it was single digits. There has always been brain damage around uh, the solutions, whether it was that financing wasn't available or people didn't understand it. What does it mean to have uh, 
a high efficiency uh, HVAC system that that it's more expensive and you're telling me there's a payback, but I don't know, just give me the thing in the moment that that works. There's always been barriers. There is a subset of people, Sierra Club members, uh, Leo Cantor Conservation Voters, there's a subset of people who will put in the time. But I really believe the barrier has been that it hasn't been dead simple and that climate hasn't been people's number one issue. And if it's not the number one issue in your life, that time barrier is a problem. And I think that's what we did really well at, at Arcadia as an example was it was sign up in two minutes and then we'll do it for you. We'll find the community. So don't worry, we got it in the background. Most people have two minutes. But one of the things we found, we put more effort into and, and time and resources, engineering resources into reducing the number of clicks that it took to sign up literally than we put into my entire business development team by almost an order of magnitude. And it was the right decision because what we found is if somebody could sign up in two minutes, you had a certain hit rate and kind of similar to, to Ravi's point about a 30%, 36% cost decline leads to doubling. What we found was it took somebody four or five minutes. You literally had a fraction as many people. That suggests to me that people care enough to start, but unless it's insanely easy, they won't follow through. And as an industry, that has been our challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ravi, I mean, I, I think it's interesting your model because basically people can just use their bank accounts. They don't need to do actually anything. They know that their deposits are being used for this type of financing. But I'm, I'm curious what anecdotes you've sort of found along the way about the same challenge. Yeah. I mean, the first thing, bank accounts are very sticky. You know, it's like been with Chase or Bank of America, been with the bank down the street for 37 years, for 50 years since I was a small child. And getting somebody to switch where they have their mortgage payment, where they pay their Netflix, all of these things are barriers to getting them to move their money. And banks know this and they put all of these barriers in place to make it harder for them to lose customers. And so one, making the application process incredibly simple, you know, it's four screens takes like 60 seconds to just give us your basic info. And then the next thing is people want to know, do we offer the services? It's like, it's, it's a very binary question. And I replace my current banking situation with Atmos. And for the most part, those people are answering yes when they ask themselves that question, because we've built this in such a way that they can go on the web, on a phone, bank where they are, and we are providing the same services as one of those large banks. And, and then the next is, what are you doing with my money? And it's not nebulous. Oh, we might plant a tree or we might do an offset here, or we might have some sort of benefit somewhere that we can't really pinpoint to, which a lot of the climate fintech is, is nebulous. Like this might have impact. We can show uh, that your money is actually financing projects that's displacing fossil energy. And so it's a, it's a concrete provision there. And then, you know, economically, we pay more on savings uh, for savings accounts than most banks or credit unions do. So all of that's sort of a no sacrifice way, just build a better product and get people to do the right thing. You know, so, so we're getting homeowners, we're getting the people that you think can put solar on their roof and it's 
you know, people already doing it, but a lot of people in apartments, their roof is their upstairs neighbor's floor. Like you can't put solar panels there. Um, you know, people in New York City mostly don't have cars, so they're not going to buy an EV. So what they can do is they move their money to us and they're helping to fund projects somewhere else. So they're still having a direct impact. And that empowerment leads to further actions. Um, so that's, that's, that's what we're finding. You know, the democratization of climate action uh, is, is enabled through, you know, through banking and through fintech in general. And what about the banks? I mean, at this point, you're partnered with a, a number of banks in order to do this. And, and how have you felt that, well, first of all, maybe share how many banks you've partnered with at this point and, and how, how has it been adopting them into this asset class that's sort of new and they probably don't really understand? Yeah, so we work with a different number of banks on whether it's on sort of the banking side, moving deposits to or leveraging their direct capital. And so... You know, we launched our loan products for residential solar last December. So it's still just a, a handful of banks there that we're lending direct capital for, but that's growing. You know, we'll be in probably, you know, a dozen plus banks uh, by the end of this year. You know, we're pushing knock on wood to be national by the end of this year. We're in seven states right now. And then in so doing, we can dramatically reduce the the cost that people are paying to go solar, to put in a heat pump. And, you know, in the US, so on residential solar and HVAC and other home improvements, the typical model is that if, if it's point of sale finance, you're going to have a high fee and a relatively low rate or a teaser rate. Like, oh, this is a great deal on a loan. And you're not being told that you're actually borrowing an extra five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars to go solar, and you're just paying for that low rate upfront. And so we dramatically reduced that that fee and the overall cost of going solar while providing a fair rate via these bank loans. And on the commercial side, so you also wanted to bring in the SMB side. There really is no consistent financing for small commercial solar across the U.S. So business owners are paying cash if they have it or going out and getting a small business loan through their local bank or credit union, uh, which can take months of, of underwriting and back and forth. And so that is blocking a lot of, a lot of this transition. A huge market segment is not yet opened up because financing just isn't there yet. Yeah, we invested in a number of other of other companies that are trying to tackle that challenge, and and it is a challenge, I think. Um, but I, I would just question, like the banks themselves, they they. I mean, I know that something like forty or fifty percent of consumers who use banks want their deposits to be used for climate friendly things, or or they want it to be put towards green investments if it's going to be used at all. And so that's a big push for the banks to work with you, I would think. But I also would think they don't really know how to do that. Like Atmos is a great solution for them in a lot of cases, but it might be a challenging um, or maybe it's getting easier, but challenging to explain that to them at this point. Sort of yes to all those. The pre-pandemic, there was only, I forget the exact number, but it was a relatively small percentage of banks in the U.S. had a mobile app. 
all of the incentives were around getting people to come into the branches. And then pandemic happens. Nobody wants to be near anyone else. It's very difficult to get people to come into a local branch to do banking. So now banks over the last three years have been forced to find digital solutions for what they typically did in person. Um, and this is what we do. And also banks being a very manually driven operation, if you're going to acquire customers, underwrite customers, you know, do the loan documentation, service those loans, you have to have a pretty high bar. Usually it's 250000 to $500,000. You have to have a loan of that size in order for the bank to make any money on it. Below that, the bank loses money. So residential solar, no banks or very few banks or credit unions have actually made loans there because they just can't from an operational perspective. And so digital solutions, other fintechs have dominated that space. And now we've come in and allowed the banks to compete in that space to really bring in. And it's working. Like we're, we're reducing costs. We're, we're bringing banks in. They don't move quickly. You know, it's not an impulse buy for them. It's still, it's still a very long sales cycle, but they are moving and, and, you know, we're getting more and more on. Uh, yeah, it's such a great value proposition for banks that choose to work with you. Yeah. And I don't, there's not that many other options for them to have access to the asset class otherwise. So it's pretty exciting what you're doing. And, and, and on that note, I know you started with solar and you, you just mentioned you launched the solar sort of loan program in December. I was at like six months ago. Maybe talk a little bit about why you started with solar and why has the focus been on solar so big recently relative to other types of decarbonization technologies? Yeah, <clears throat> I think for a few reasons. One, the, the high upfront costs, that these high fees that are charged by the market leaders allow for significant cost savings for the borrower pretty quickly. So getting in there, very large established installer network, the, the overall industry is pretty well established at this point. So reaching customers is pretty straightforward versus selling heat pumps. So that's why we chose residential solar, commercial solar. The market is still, it's much more patchwork versus, you know, uh, consistently covered. But we'll, we'll be moving into that space on the residential like electrification side. It, it's much more boots on the ground. And in terms of the two biggest consumers of fossil fuels, usually in a home are the space heating and water heating. And so for space heating, your, your furnace, your AC, et cetera, and also for your water heater, typically at about 90% are replaced on an emergency basis. You're not just like, people don't have solar, like, oh, I'm going to add solar. They don't have like a fossil fuel energy producing machine in their house that they're facing. So it's a different sales process than, hey, why don't you get rid of your perfectly working, you know, your, your perfectly functioning gas furnace to go with an electric heat pump? Um, it's usually my furnace just died. I want to replace something. And like, that's how people replace those normally. So it's a much smaller market of those that are transitioning their home away from fossil fuels. But 
what we've seen in the last year, year and a half with rewiring America, with the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, much more emphasis is now being placed on and the market is quickly expanding for people doing active replacements of their their fossil fuel appliances for the electric versions. And so within the next quarter or two, we will be launching a a loan for that as well. Yeah. So hang on. I want to jump into that in a second. But Zach, I, I know you focus on com- commercial solar mostly, right? We own hundreds of residential systems as well. We do focus on commercial. Um, but actually, I, I was going to tag back because I was just smiling. I was going to tag back something Ravi was saying about, about um, space conditioning being the big load. Obviously, I, so I just came from a K Street portfolio company, uh, smartac.com. And I think the thing that struck me when I met them, when I was at Arcadia and we were trying to partner and they wanted to run the financing of new HVAC units through an Arcadia bill, through the, the energy bill has some really cool implications. But um, one of the things that, that I learned about air conditioning over the last three years, and it wasn't my background, but the entirety of that business happens on a kind of disaster for the consumer event. From a consumer standpoint, you always think your air conditioning, your space conditioning is working. It's binary. It's either working or it's not. And of course, like most mechanical systems, there's, there's some in-betweens. The fact is that most people's air conditioning systems are degrading over a period of months, releasing CFCs into the air, um, using way too much energy. But as long as your house is still 72 degrees, you don't notice that the compressor was running 40 minutes in the hour versus the 13 it should have to get you there. My point in this, playing this out, is that from a consumer standpoint, you've been going along for years. You think your air conditioner is working. It breaks. What do you do? It's 105 degrees in Houston. I Google it. The first contractor who shows up is who I'm going to go with. And assuming their price isn't completely outrageous, but that's, I mean, that's literally how this works for 80% of people. Google or Angie's List. First person who shows up, they fix it. If that contractor doesn't have an incentive to go with a higher efficiency system or something that's a little bit more climate friendly. Why would they? And you in that moment, because you haven't been planning for this, frankly, want the cheapest point solution. What SmartAC built was a system for residential HVAC monitoring that lets you catch issues six, eight months in advance. What that does is it can help a contractor transition the sales process from a moment of urgency, where again, unless climate is your absolute number and focus, you just take the cheapest damn thing and move on because mm-hmm. you need con- space conditioning for your kids that night. And it lets you make a proactive decision where they can put a couple choices in front of you. Yeah. And if there's financing, whether it's from Atlas or somebody else, and, and we had a financing solution through a specialty lender, which is how a lot of you know, kind of non-bank specialty lenders, how a lot of this is done. If as a consumer, you have a couple months to make a choice, you might actually make a different one. But there's all kinds of ways I think that people are doing cool things around the edge of the grid to solve this problem. But so many of the problems, and Rob, you mentioned this with space conditioning or water heating, the consumer has a period of an hour to make a call. And unless that contractor happens to be pitching a a better for the climate solution, which has until recently been unlikely, and further is more expensive in a moment where it's a shock cost to you, it has led to significantly lower deployments 
of the right long-term climate, but also economic solutions for the consumer. And we've been hamstrung by this because everything is reactionary. And, and I think what Smart AC does, which is so cool, and there's other people trying to do it too, we've got to make it so that people have time to make the right decision. And then that just hasn't been the case up until really recently with, I think IOT, you know, gets overplayed in some sense. There has to be a business model behind IOT that says, here's why I have, why I'm monitoring things, but there's real economic value around, around the space conditioning side. Uh, so I know I deviated from where you were going there, but, but when Ravi played up kind of edge of grid things in people's homes that are worth financing, the decision-making ability has as much to do with as the financing on whether the, what we were with the three of us and probably people listening to this would consider the, the right decision gets made. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. A really good point. A question I always have is, you know, these installers that you mentioned that don't always have, let's say, climate-friendly options for the consumer or the SMB. I wonder, I mean, curious if you know, if either of you know, what percent of installers at this point are offering those types of options? It's, let's say it's, I don't have any like concrete numbers on this, but it's growing. Problem is, heat pumps that were sold sort of in the mid aughts in the US had some significant issues. And so there are a lot of HVAC contractors out there right now that you say, oh, when a heat pump, they say heat pumps don't work because they remember the heat pumps from 10, 15 years ago where they had a lot of service calls. They, they made burn and they didn't them. like it. Yep. Exactly. And so rather than, you know, that heat pump or heat pump of that generation, there's a blanket statement of, this technology doesn't work. And we're here, it's like, oh, switch to electric induction cooking. Like electric sucks and people's electric cooking sucks. And they're thinking of those electric coils that, you know, most of the US has. So anyway, the the communication and the accuracy of how we describe these things is important and so getting these contractors on board, it's like they have to know the, the difference and we have to communicate to them that the technology is better now that it works. Well, one last question. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Zach. Just a very quick anecdote on this. I think one of the real challenges that we have, even if we can solve the financial component uh, through a cheaper capital on the contracting side for, for anything that's in the home, for anything that's a retrofit, um, Contractors, residential contractors in the U.S. are doing really well right now, especially through COVID. And I think one of the big challenges we had at Smart AC was contractors would test our technology. With, this is incredible. And we believe you that we would make more money using it. But I'm already making a lot of money right now. And so I don't have to change. Change and, is hard. But change is, change is hard, but change is really hard when everything's going fine. I mean, you'd meet with contractors. And this would be a, not one of the largest in the country, a mid-sized contractor. You know, the guy probably has a plane. You know, he's got multiple yeah. houses. These, these folks, the, the folks who own these companies are making more than all the rest of us sitting in the room with them. You can be a believer and things are already working well enough. And I really, as an industry, I think we're, we're making great strides on the, on the cost of capital. I think we're making great strides on the technology side. From an implementation standpoint, we don't have an easy answer yet for why the folks who are out there getting into people's homes should change the way that they do business. 
we have not cracked that as an industry. And there are people trying, and 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 we were trying smart see. I think there's a lot of people trying, but until we crack that, you'll see a much, much slower deployment than any of us want, even if we're making the numbers look good, even if the technology is cool, and even if everybody believes that it's genuinely better. We have to make the contractors' lives better and yeah. have to make switch over. And and we haven't yet. It's so important to understand all these personas and aspects of the market that impact our ability as a planet to decarbonize. It, it's just, it, I really appreciate you guys sharing all these things. And and one more question for both of you, and then I think we should we should chat a little bit about this uh, this IRA and the the impacts of the IRA Act that was passed last year. Um, but the when you're thinking about climate fintech, knowing all of this and the, dedicating your life to this and being so passionate about it, what do you think is going to be the next innovation we we'll start seeing more of? from a climate fintech perspective? Um, I think, you know, I, th- I think the biggest innovation here will actually become not from a startup, but from uh, the quasi-government entities of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That will be the biggest one is that when they'll purchase first mortgages that have a solar in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Super so basically allowing, yeah, because that is going to completely unlock the entire mortgage industry. And so we won't need additional specialty finance vehicles to put solar and electrification. It will all be done right up front. Um, so that's like when you buy a house and you renovate it, you can sort of like wrap that together in your mortgage, but you maybe can't in this case. Yeah. So it, it's the alteration of the first mortgage versus sort of doing a mortgage refi with a cash out to pay off the, the loans, which is sort of the, you know, yep. the innovation that we have now. Um, you know, and spoke with them nine years ago about it. Uh, you know, or is it, no, seven years ago about it first. And again, three years ago about it. So probably a, it'll only be another five to eight years before that happens, but it's, <laughs> it's moving in that direction. I was, I was just going to say that's been the holy grail for for my whole career, and uh, we'll see when it occurs. It's, I, I felt that way at, at Gridpoint in 2007. We were talking about using that to finance Gridpoint. Yeah, battery storage, solar connected homes, and load control. We had a, a really elegant refrigerator-looking solution that did that, and we thought that uh, that tying that into the mortgage was going to be the holy grail back in 2007. It still is. It's still bigger than anything else that could occur. It's it's when when will that happen? Yeah, yeah, that's really that's super interesting. I, also, let's take two minutes and talk about this IRA thing because it's huge and it's like billions and billions of dollars, and and people ask and talk about it all the time. But it's also like hundreds of pages to read through, and nobody really understands how it's going to impact anything. But that, especially you, like in your business in your current business that you're doing, I, I'm curious if that was if the passing of the IRA, which basically had in like 370 billion of of, of climate change programs through loans, grants, other, other types of things. Did, was that part of your decision to go into this business? Um, or how is it impacting the market you serve? Yeah, well, I would say we were already in that business. We've grown the business since then. I think part of how it impacted it was just formalizing the tax credits for an extended period of time. That was meaningful, keeping them at their, at their current levels. I think everybody is still a little unclear on how the adders will play out. Um, it's exciting to hear about adders tied to low income or made in America. The rules around that, everything is is pretty new um, and causing a, l- a little bit of turmoil in the market in terms of understanding what comes next. 
but generally and directionally, it's it's huge. What we're seeing in solar, what I think Red Bull's a part of, is that type of movement where there will be collections of people who, again, tying back to my point from the very beginning, choose to take their capital, not just their time, and put it towards clean energy. And and from our business, we're talking about people putting pretty substantial amounts of capital, you know, six, maybe seven figures each. And the IRA put some stability to people making that leap. Um, and I think that was maybe the biggest thing that, it, that, that could have happened for, for businesses like ours. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, just in the interest of time, I want to ask you guys if you have any thoughts on how um, VC investors should be looking at climate fintech companies uh, and investing in space. This is a space I, I see. A, we see a lot of deal flow and especially being in D.C., especially being focused on regulated markets. And that's why we really liked Atmos when we were first introduced to you, Ravi. But I mean, that was like, what, two years ago now, I, I want to say. It's been a, been a while. And yeah. we've, we've seen some growth in the in the space. But just your perspective, if you're investing in the space, what would be a key takeaway? I think it's to, one, like broaden your horizon around like what these companies are, because we definitely don't fit into sort of a typical box, you know, a, about what we should be, whether we're a a neobank or a lender or, or anything in between, how climate is going to present what needs to be done is going to, going to require different ways of thinking. Uh, and so uh, don't just immediately, you know, think, oh, this is X for Y. Um, you know, you, you have to go back to a first principles and it's like, what is solving the problem? And, you know, so... Do that and then know that you know, this is not just an affinity play for a small group wow. of people who you know, uh, are members of the Sierra Club. As I said, you know, 92% of people want clean energy. Most people think it's 76% want greater action from our government on this. And so it's a massive market that touches absolutely everything. And so if you aren't figuring out ways to invest into this space, you're essentially just limiting, you're removing yourself from the biggest market of the 21st century. That's a, a more eloquent answer than I'll have. My, my small tag on would be, based on my experience, um, and tying back to some points about our Kia and Smarties, in terms of looking at which companies to fund, is that climate tent tank company solving a very large problem for somebody, whether it's the homeowner or a contractor, in order to get adoption? Or are you making solving a smaller problem incredibly easy? Um, and I think, frankly, a lot of folks in climate, and I've been a part of this, I'm asking Stones, couldn't answer clearly that I was doing one of the two. Again, either solving a huge problem for somebody in the chain with that with that solution, uh, usually financing related, or you're not solving a huge problem, but you made it so easy for somebody to do something that mattered to them, which is what Arcade has done an amazing job of, is what Ravi's doing. Have you made it the, easy for the masses to be like, yes, I get to put my money more in my mouth is in five minutes, 10 minutes. Again, I think a lot of companies haven't been able to answer that. Um, and that's, that's really a challenge. So if I was a, a VC in this space, I'd want to know somebody could do one or the other of those two. Yeah, that's a great point. 
I'd also just say where there's so much data coming out of climate tech companies and fintech companies around this, tracking, reporting, analyzing all of the data that helps us get to decarbonization. And there's going to be huge opportunities there. So I think for investors, it's figuring out where those opportunities are, like what the, those huge data sets are and who wants them and why is a really critical factor in investing in the space right now. But yeah, any other final thoughts? Well, thank you so much for having us. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, guys. This was great. Thank you, Mage. Well, yes. Thank you. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks.